Hi everyone, my name is Dylan and I'll be reading the word this morning. Um, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13 for the reading of the passage. And you can get out your Bibles or devices to follow along. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as I pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning that we get to gather here and we just come before you now and we just adore you, God. You're all powerful and we can't comprehend your understanding, God. And we just confess that we forget that so quickly, God. Um, and I just pray that um, this morning that... Um, you would be transforming our hearts with your Holy Spirit, God. And I just pray for Alden as he's preaching on this passage. And I pray that um, you would just be speaking through him, Lord, and um, just reminding us of the gospel, God. And I just pray that um, because of this um, time here that we would just be able to reflect that we've been saved and that we have eternal life with you. God, if we've accepted your gospel, but also just rejoicing in the fact that we have the power to kill sin in our own lives, God, and I just pray that you, you would just help us to reflect on the gospel more um, because of what we're hearing today, and I just pray that Alden would, um, yeah, I just pray for Alden as he articulates this to us, God, and I just pray for all the little kids downstairs, and I pray that you would um, watch over them um, now and as they're growing up, and that they would grow up to love you a lot. And um, I just pray against all distractions this morning, and thank you for this time, and in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Mercy House Kids Plus can gather over here as you see. Well, my name is Alden, and I get to preach to you on this famous passage, 1 Corinthians 13. Before I do that, I want to invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to study it today. We pray that 
you would open our eyes to understand what it is that you say love is and how it works, God. You say in 1 Timothy that your word is breathed out by you, and it equips us for every good work, God. And Lord, the same power that you exercised when you created the universe is the power that's contained in these words, Lord. And so I pray that that power would be unbridled here this morning and that we would be brought to know you deeper, love you deeper, and have a greater understanding of your love. In your name we pray, amen. So you're welcome to open your Bibles. I invite you to do that to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I won't have the text on the slides here. That way you guys can really read it for yourselves and follow along as I'm teaching on these words. But last week, Tommy preached on chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, which talks about spiritual gifts. And the very last sentence of chapter 12 reads this in verse 31, the last sentence, and I will show you a still more excellent way. There is something better than spiritual gifts, Paul's saying, something more necessary than spiritual gifts, and that is love, and that is what chapter 13 is about. If you're a note taker, I have an outline for you. Verses 1 to 3, the first paragraph, that, is, that describes the effects of not having love. Again, verses 1 through 3 describe the effects of not having love. The second paragraph, verses 4 through 7, describe what love does and does not do. What love does and does not do. And then the last paragraph, verses 8 through 13, explain that love is endless and love is the greatest. Love is endless and love is the greatest. So let's look at the first paragraph now, verses 1 through 3. Here are the effects of not having love. I'll read verses 1 through 3 now. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So speaking the languages of angels and humans, both, that's flashy. And for the Corinthians, who are really into spiritual gifts, they'd be really into that. That's a spectacular gift to both. I can talk like angels, I can talk like people. But then Paul cuts them off. But if you don't have love, you're just noise. You're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And it doesn't say that my speech is just noise, but look, it says, I myself am noise. My whole being is reduced to mere noise if I do not have love. Verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. So we're cutting it off there for a moment. This is hypothetical. There's no merely human prophet who ever had this power to understand all mysteries and all knowledge. A mystery, by the way, that word, every time we see that in the New Testament, it's something that was hidden and is now revealed in prophecy. That's what a mystery is in every case in the New Testament, something that was hidden and is now revealed in prophecy. So to say, I understand all, all mysteries is ridiculous. He's saying, if I understood every prophecy ever, Prophets themselves really understood the meaning of their own prophecies. That's what 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 is saying. It's saying prophets who prophesied, studied, and asked questions 
about their own words, wondering what they meant. They didn't get it. They just said it obediently because God told them to. But Paul goes on. And if I have all knowledge, that is, if I literally know everything. So to put this together, if I, Paul's basically saying, if I understand every prophecy ever, which the prophets who produced them didn't even do, and if I just know everything, that's a profound spiritual gift. Let's hold on to that. The sentence continues. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So if I have a special gift of faith, Tommy talked about this last week, that's so strong as to enable me to pick up mountains, mountains with an S, that's plural, multiple mountains, pick up mountains and heave them like into the ocean or something. That'd be grand. That'd be a spectacle, right? That'd be a spectacular gift. But if I'm able to do that, but I have not love, what am I? I am nothing. Again, it's not my actions are nothing, that grandeur of dropping a mountain into the ocean. That's not what it's talking about. It's not my gifts are nothing. My gifts are there. But I myself am reduced to nothing if I don't have love. Whatever particular thing you're really good at, maybe you're the best there is, maybe you're the best there ever was, you yourself are reduced to nothing before God if you do not love. Your abilities do not define you. Whether or not you love is what defines you. Whether or not you love is what makes you something or what makes you nothing. So verses 1 and 2 talk about abilities you can perform without love. But now verse 3 talks about actions you can perform without love. Verse 3, here it is. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So I can give everything I own to the poor. As Christians, we recognize, and even most secular people recognize, generosity is good, so we can do that. Or I can offer my body to be burned. I can offer myself to die. Maybe martyrdom is in view, which in its proper place is a noble thing to do, to die for our faith, right? We're, we're called to be willing to do that. And after all, in chapter 3 of this sermon series, we learned that we get rewarded for the good things that we do on earth. But Paul cuts us off there. But if I do these good works without love, what do I gain? Do I gain a reward? No, this text says I gain nothing. To apply this to us today, I can go to work without love. Whether we have a formal career or whether we're a stay-at-home mom, how easy is it to show up to the work that we're called to do and let our motivation be something other than love for God? We serve our families without love. We serve our church without love. To those of us involved in Mercy House, whether in a small or a large capacity, I know firsthand that this is a hard moment in ministry, especially with this transition that we're in. This season may have taken a toll on you, and maybe if you have a family, it's taken a toll on your family. Maybe you've sacrificed for your family, or sacrificed at the cost of your family for this church. But that said, be warned and reminded that you can sacrifice all you're able to give to this church, but if you offer yourself without love to anything, to this church, to your family, to your friends, by, if you do that by just gritting your teeth and getting through it, we gain nothing. Honestly, this only comes to mind because it's a temptation for me. I can't preach this without conviction. I often don't have love for God or my love for you all in this church as my motivation. 
especially if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, rather, I want to talk to you. At the end of your life, if you have not loved God, not only will you be nothing, verse 2 says, not only will you gain nothing, verse 3 says, but you will endure eternal punishment from God because you did not love him. And so I invite you, as I'm about to explain what love does in these next verses, I invite you to consider loving God. Loving God is what makes our lives something rather than nothing. And so at this point, okay, Paul, you've convinced us love is important. We get it. Love is necessary. So how do we do it? And that's what verses 4 through 7 teach us. Again, in our outline, we just checked off effects of not having love. Now the second paragraph, what love does and what love does not do. I'll read verses 4 through 7 now. Follow along with me. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This paragraph is a series of 15 verbs that love does do or that love does not do. There's a difference between a verb and an adjective. A verb is an action that we perform. An adjective is a description about something. But in this paragraph, love is exclusively described by what it does. That means real love is, is marked by real action. Notably, love is not described as a feeling in this paragraph. Love is described by its actions, by its performance. Let's dig into what those actions are. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. So English does not have verbal forms of these words for patient and kind. That's why they're provided here in English as adjectives. But in the original Greek, the words for both patient and kind, along with all of the actions of love, all of the features of love in this paragraph, they're verbs, they're actions. They're not descriptions about it. So when we see the word patient here, that's an active verb. It's not just a passive adjective that describes love. Love does patience. It's the difference between me saying these two things. Take Jimmy Oki, for example. He's a member of our church. He leads us in worship every now and again. If I were to say, Jimmy Oki is musical, that's one thing. I'm describing him, right? But if I say, Jimmy Oki plays music, well, that's different. I'm not just saying he enjoys music. I'm not just saying he sits back and thinks about it in this passive way. But rather, Jimmy actively plays music. He exercises effort to play music. This is not just a trait about him, but something he actively does. So it's not, this text is not just saying love is patient. It's not just a description about love, but this is what love does. Love patiences. Love does patience. The same with the phrase, is kind. Now look, I think this is a fine translation. We don't have English words for this. I'm not knocking ESV, not being a weirdo. But I make a big deal about this in particular because in ancient Greek, they didn't have words for this either. It sounds weird to us to say love patiences and love kindses, but it sounded weird to them too. Let me explain. The adjective form of patient and kind were very common in ancient Greek literature. We see examples of it all over the place in famous literature pieces. But the verbal form of patient was very rare in Greek literature, and the verbal form of kind didn't exist until Paul invented it in this letter, some commentators point out. So Paul is inventing words. I point all this out to say, Paul is inventing words to wake up the Corinthians to the fact that love acts, love does, love works. 
Love is not passive. It is active and continually so. It doesn't say in the past tense that love patiented or love kinded and then it's one and done, but rather love patiences and love kindses, if you will, in an ongoing, continual way. The Corinthians struggled to do patience. Chapter 14, we're going to learn about this next week. The people wanted to prophesy, and everybody wanted to prophesy in their Sunday services, but they all wanted to prophesy at the same time, and they weren't willing to be patient with each other and let the other finish talking. That's like a very childish example, but I think that we do this too, if we're honest. We want our desires met immediately, don't we? And sometimes we want that more than we care about how it affects other people. We want something that we don't have and we want it right now. We're impatient with each other. We're like, man, this guy, how can he not have it together by now? That's stuff that we say, in our hearts at least. Or maybe you're impatient as you wait for your suffering to end. We don't do patience very well. And we don't love very well. The Corinthians struggled in doing kindness as well. In chapter 11, we learned, during the communion services, the rich Corinthians during communion would eat really big meals right in front of the poor, hungry Corinthians who went without food during their communion service, right in their face. How rude is that? That's so rude. Rude, by the way, is in verse 5 describing what love does not do. Rude is just the opposite of kind, I think. So love does kindness, but it does not do rudeness. Again, that's a dramatic example. The Corinthians were a particular mess. But if we're honest, we're often tempted to be unkind or, in other words, tempted to be rude. Maybe we want to be mean to, some, to someone because they've hurt us, and we want them to feel it. We want, we want to give revenge. Maybe we're frustrated, and we don't know how else to express it, so we're just mean. We don't do kindness very well. We don't love very well. Verse 4 continues, love does not envy or boast. The Corinthians, they envied each other. In chapter 7, they aspired to the gift of singleness in such a way that they envied those who had the gift, saying everybody should abstain from sex, everybody should be single. From our perspective, that's weird to envy singleness because we envy married people. But just because we're married doesn't mean there's no room for us to envy because we can still envy those with, from our perspective, have functional families that we perceive we don't have, or stable jobs or nice houses, or people with tons of friends, people who are really outgoing. We can envy those who we think have easier lives than us. As a young preacher, I envy preachers who can prepare well and prepare quickly. That's me. We all envy all the time. We're not loving all the time. The Corinthians boasted in chapters 1, 3, and 4. They boasted about their preferred pastors, bragging that their pastor was better than the other people's pastor, Apollos, Paul, and Peter. We brag too, don't we? We boast. We might even do this as a church. We might say something like, oh, other, other churches just don't teach the Bible the same way we do. And don't get me wrong, I'm glad that our church, for example, preaches through entire books of the Bible like what we're doing now. I think it's important to teach the whole counsel of God. I think more churches should do that. I think it's a shame that more churches don't do that. But there's a fine line between being glad that we do something and bragging that we do something, isn't there? And to make it more individual, what's something that you think you're awesome at? How often do you talk about it? That might be what you boast or brag about. Those of us who struggle with pride often end up struggling with boasting. We do boast, and that's not what love does. 
Verse 4 continues, it is not arrogant. Boasting and arrogance are similar. Boasting is what we say to others when we think we're awesome, and then arrogance is us thinking we're awesome. So we just covered boasting, so we're going to keep moving. Verse 5, love is not rude. We covered this when we talked about kindness in verse 4. Continuing on, verse 5 says, it does not insist on its own way. This is a sharp one, I think. The Corinthians, they did insist on their own way. They said things like this in chapter 6 and chapter 10. All things are lawful for me, so I'm going to do whatever I want, regardless of how it affects others. Now, if we're, if we're frank, I don't think any of us would honestly say, who, me? No, I never insist on my own way. I always insist on everybody else's way. I'm perfectly selfless. I don't think any of us would really say that. And that's because it's radically contrary to our nature to take our real, honest preference and just constantly give it to others. This is radical. We don't do this perfectly. One way that I think our church is going to be tested at insisting on our own way or not is how our church is going to respond to the recent disclosure of sexual abuse that's taken place in our denomination, the SBC. Some of us think we need to leave the SBC. Some of us think we need to stay. There are legitimate reasons to think both ways. And as a church, we're going to need to watch ourselves that we don't insist on our own opinion, our own way. Instead, we're going to, need to, we're going to be tested to, are we going to look to the interests of others, especially those who disagree with us? I think that's going to be really hard for us, especially because it's such a delicate, sensitive issue. But I hope that we rise to the occasion, Mercy House, of loving one another and not insisting on our own way through this. Verse 5 continues, it is not irritable or resentful. Irritable is an adjective in English, but again, in the original Greek, it's a verb. Maybe we could say, to be irritated. But that's a little bit wild, isn't it? Love does not get irritated. Talk about convicting. I get irritated all the time. The Corinthians got irritated with each other. Chapter 8, the knowledgeable Christians who knew that they were permitted to eat food offered to idols... They were irritated by the weaker Christians who felt uncomfortable with eating food offered to idols. Maybe they would have said something like this, oh, come on, guys, everybody knows this is okay. Would you just eat it? They got irritated. We get irritated with each other at work, at home, irritated with our family, with our friends. We get irritated with people who are our friends that we wish were not our friends. But that's not love. Love does not get irritated. We do not love perfectly. Resentful. In Greek, this is two words. To maybe literally, you could say it's to count wrongs or to record wrongs. The NIV, we might be familiar with this, says love keeps no record of wrongs. We might have heard that before. But the Corinthians, they recorded wrongs against each other. In chapter 6, they sued each other over trivial cases we learned about. Now, we might not be so dramatic as to someone spills a cup of coffee on our shirt and we sue them. We might not be that dramatic. But we definitely record wrongs in our hearts. When we're offended, we replay what someone said over and over again, don't we? We don't put it behind us. We record it. We count it. In a very real sense, love looks like forgetting their wrongs and treating our perpetrators like the wrong never happened. Honestly, we don't do that very well. We don't love people by forgetting their wrongs. We literally remember their wrongs. An important side note that I'm going to make here is that I think when we hear something like this, 
we might wonder how to put together this truth of not counting up wrongs with the recent SPC disclosures of sexual assault and sexual abuse. Like, okay, what, am, what's, what are we doing here? Am I supposed to just act like it never happened and let these men run free? I mean, not counting up wrongs. Absolutely not. If a pastor does something that the state considers criminal, whether sexual or whatever, they can still be accountable to the state. They may be forgiven, okay? Their church might forgive them. Their victims might forgive them. And they should. We should say that. We should always encourage forgiveness, yes. But let's not let these criminals off the hook either. Criminal actions can still warrant criminal charges, even in the context of personal forgiveness. The call to not count wrongs is not a call to conceal criminal behavior. If you're wondering how to harmonize forgiveness with this verse and with 1 Corinthians 6, the problem in 1 Corinthians 6 was they were suing each other. Suing is not the same thing as reporting. It is biblically possible, I hope you hear me, it is biblically possible for you to both forgive and report criminal sexual behavior. And if you are a victim of sexual abuse in church, do not let your abuser convince you that you're not allowed to tell someone. That's a lie. God help us. And he will. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The Corinthians, they rejoiced at wrongdoing. Verses 5 Sorry, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. One of their church members was publicly and proudly having regular sex with his stepmom. And they, as a church congregation, gave public approval to him. Again, that's pretty dramatic. I don't think we often approve of incest today in the church. But let's take a step back. I think we do rejoice at wrongdoing. Isn't that why gossip is so enticing? We hear someone did something wrong and we suddenly become super interested, I think we too rejoice at wrongdoing. But rather, love rejoices with the truth. Love is glad when people are delivered from sin, for example. Love rejoices when people gain an understanding about God. Love rejoices when people, when people respond in faith to the gospel. And I think we do this. But I still don't think we do it perfectly, do we? There are other things that can tend to take our attention. There are other things that we can rejoice in, and sometimes that we rejoice in more than things of the truth. We can rejoice in a new house or a new car or promotion or just whatever, anything temporal. We can rejoice in those things, sometimes more than we do eternal things, sometimes more than we do in the truth. Again, I think we find here that we do not love as perfectly as we'd like to love. Moving into verse 7, love bears all things. The Corinthians didn't bear all things. That's why they sued each other over trivial cases in chapter 6. They weren't willing to just bear the wrong. Forbearance is a similar word, long-term bearing with people. That's what's in mind here, bearing all things. For us, it's hard for us to again and again and again take wrongdoing done to us over and over and over. It's hard to bear all things. And all things, everything. You kidding me? We collapse under that weight. We just sin. We just stop loving people. I can't bear this. I'm out. We, we have that attitude. We all have a limit to what we can bear with people. We do not bear with people perfectly. We do not love perfectly. 
Verse 7 continues, love believes all things. The Corinthians struggled to believe all things. Chapters 1, 3, and 4, they didn't believe the best in those who preferred other Bible teachers, who preferred other pastors. Rather, they divided over it. Talk about not believing the best in people, a church division over preference in a pastor. Now, look, this call to believe all things does not mean you're gullible and that you literally believe everything you hear, like, oh, I believe, I believe everything. I don't think that's what this is saying. But I do think it's saying that we need to give an honest, open-minded, favorable interpretation to everything, at least on the outset. Everything, all things. How often, though, do we hold back the benefit of the doubt? How often do we distrust people and think doubtfully about them? How seldom do we really believe in people? Personally, I'm a really skeptical guy. I think this is convicting for me. I don't usually give an honestly, open-minded, favorable interpretation to people. I doubt a lot. I doubt people. I don't think we believe all things very well. I don't think we love very well. Verse 7 continues, love hopes all things. The Corinthians did not hope well. In chapter 15, in a few weeks, we're going to learn that they gave up hope in their own future bodily resurrection. They lost hope. We lose hope too. Maybe we look at our own life and we give up hope that things could ever improve in our life. We look at other people and think, oof, there's no hope for that guy. Maybe we look at SBC scandals and think there's no hope for this denomination. Or worse, maybe we look at these scandals and say there's no hope for church in general. I'm better off without church. Or maybe even worse than that, I'm so far gone, I am such a sinner, there is no hope for me. Jesus can't save me. I've heard people say that. I'm sure you have too. It is easy to give up hope. But the call to be hopeful stands. And it's a call to hope all things. I don't think we do that. I don't think we hope perfectly. I don't think we love perfectly. Verse 7 continues, love endures all things. The Corinthians failed at enduring all things. Chapter 10, verse 13, we read this. Paul says, when you're tempted, God will provide a way of escape so that you can endure that temptation. But they didn't. Instead, the Corinthians, in particular, right after that call to endure, caved under the pressure and participated in the worship services of idol gods. They did not endure temptation. Neither do we endure temptation for God, do we? None of us here is sinless. Have we endured perfectly? No. We all have a limit to our endurance, and neither do we endure for those around us. We say things, at least in our hearts, maybe not out loud, like, you know what, I just can't deal with them anymore. I I can't endure this. We're not enduring when we say that. We do not endure perfectly. We sin against God and we sin against others. We do not love perfectly. And then finally, verse 8. This is the 16th verb that love does or does not do. Love never ends. Love does all of that. All those 15 verbs that we just talked about in verses 4 through 7, love does all of that endlessly. We don't do all that. Love never stops acting. It never stops doing. It never stops working. In all the ways that we just covered, it never stops. It does it continually, unendlessly endlessly. Back to our outline. Now we're looking at verses 8 through 13. Love is endless and love is the greatest. Verse 8 continues, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Paul's saying, hey, look, we're coming right out of chapter 12, right? 
these gifts that you guys are so excited about, they're temporary, but you're lacking in love, the eternal thing. Corinthians, invest in love. Invest in the eternal things. Don't invest in the gifts. You're doing this backwards. He explains himself further in verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Their gift of knowledge that they were so excited about, it is described here as in part. What little they knew, what little we know, is only a fraction, guys, of what there is to know. Our knowledge is in part. It's partial. We don't know everything. Their gift of prophecy, looking at verse 9 again, that they were so excited about, again, it's described as in part. What little they prophesied about was only a fraction of all the truths about God. It's in part. In other words, their gifts, our gifts, whatever gifts we have, our gifts are partial. Verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What's the perfect? That's kind of a weird phrase, right? Can anyone think of anything or anyone that's perfect? God. God's the only right answer to that. This is talking about when Jesus comes, when the perfect comes, when Jesus comes back, when Jesus returns. That is when, quote, the partial will pass away. The partial is our gifts. And so if that's all the case, our gifts go away when Jesus comes back. Huh. What do you mean? Well, Paul's glad you asked. Verse 11 continues. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Paul compares the present moment when we have spiritual gifts to childhood. And he compares the time that we're with Jesus without gifts, without spiritual gifts that is, to adulthood. So children is to the present moment as adulthood is to when Jesus comes back. Looking at this phrase one more time, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. That is, as children do. As children are supposed to do. We don't expect children to behave like adults. We expect them to behave according to their age. It is literally appropriate for children to be childish. This season of childhood that we're in right now is a good season. And it's good for us to use our gifts in this season. But it is not good to make our gifts the main thing. Because childhood, just like our gifts, does not last forever. Now, we should still use these gifts. Why? Because in our childhood, for the sake of love, with love as our motivation, we should love with our gifts. Because love is an eternal investment in our adulthood with Jesus. We should use our gifts right now in our childhood for the sake of love, because love is an eternal investment for our adulthood with Jesus. Verse 12, for now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Right now, our vision is dim. We've got all these questions about God, all these questions about life, so right now, our vision's dim, right? I think we all feel that to some level. But then, when Jesus comes back, we will know God face to face. We will know God and interact with God directly. We don't have to look through this dim mirror anymore. The phrase face to face elsewhere in the Bible is used to refer to people meeting God in person directly. Jacob wrestled with God. That's Genesis 32:30. How did he do it? Face to face, it says. 
Moses, when he talked with God in Deuteronomy 34.10, he did so face to face. When God shows up to meet people directly, this is the phrase that's used. And that's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. We're going to meet him. Right now, we have indirect, incomplete knowledge. But then, we're going to look Jesus right in the eyes. We're going to look at Jesus face to face. We're going to know him face to face. We're going to know Jesus. We're going to know God. Verse 12 continues, now I know in part. Yeah, we feel that. But then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We will have a full understanding of God when we meet him. Our present knowledge doesn't even come close In fact, our present knowledge is so incomparable that it is described as passing away. Knowledge as we know it is just over. And a new and complete and full knowledge of God, as He truly and totally is, will replace that partial knowledge. And so, verse 13, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I know of two reasons why love is the greatest of these three, faith, hope, and love. The first one is that it is love that motivates faith and hope. We learned about that in verse 7. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Belief and faith, those are really similar words. So it's, it's faith and hope that are actions that love itself performs. So faith and hope are fruits of love, if you will. Love is the reason for faith and hope. That's the first reason that love is the greatest of these three. Second, faith and hope are diminished once we meet God, but love is not diminished. A few verses that explain this, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. What does that mean? Basically, faith is contrary to sight, right? Romans 8, 24, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Again, hope is contrary to sight. Finally, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So faith is contrary to sight. Hope is contrary to sight. So faith and hope cease to exist once the thing hoped for and once the thing be having exercised faith in is seen. They cease to exist once they're seen. So why am I saying they're diminished rather than they're eradicated? Right now, this is why, I don't think faith and hope completely, entirely, totally go away once we meet Jesus. I do think they're diminished. Let me explain myself. Right now, we specifically have faith and hope that we will see Jesus face to face on that day. That's what we hope for. That's what we have faith in. We don't see him now, but we hope for it. We have faith in it. But once we get there, that's year one of heaven, right? I think we're going to have faith and hope that Jesus is going to keep us until year 1,000 of heaven. Now, at year one, I don't yet see year 1,000, but I have faith and hope that Jesus is going to get me there. To be clear, we're not going to be plagued by doubts. Oh my gosh, Jesus, you're going to keep us until year 1,000. We're in heaven. We're doubting. That's not what's going to happen. But I do think that we will exercise some degree of faith and hope even there in heaven. And specifically, that faith and hope will be rooted in that which is not seen, which is future and future and greater and greater, greater and greater glories that we share with Christ in heaven continually and eternally. So all of that said, 
Once we meet Jesus, faith and hope, at the very least, are not as necessary. Because we will. We will see him. And so they diminish. But we will love Jesus in a never-ending, undiminished, eternal fashion. And that is what we look forward to. And that is glorious. The greatest thing that we can do is love. The problem is, we don't. At least not perfectly. At least not the way that God shows us to love. And what's that mean? That means that if God's call to love perfectly depends on our strength, my friends, then verse 1 of our text, we are noise. We are noise. We ourselves. Verse 2, we ourselves are nothing. And verse 3, we gain nothing. Putting all three of those together, we're noisy nothings deserving God's eternal punishment for disobeying his call to love perfectly. Some of us right now are thinking, yep, it's true. I do not love well. And I think that's good. That's a healthy response. And I want you to know, Jesus did something about that. More on that in a moment. Some of us, though, this is a really hard sermon to hear because you have not been loved well by the people around you. This message is really sad for you because you're hearing all about love and you feel like you've never experienced love yourself. Jesus did something about that too. It's true, we do not love others well. And ultimately, others have not loved us well either. But what did Jesus do about that? He loved. He loved. Let's look at verse 3 again. If I give away all I have, Jesus did that. He died for us to forgive us of our sin. Verse 3 continues, if I deliver up my body to be burned, Jesus didn't get burned, but he did deliver up his body. And verse 3 is a warning, but if you don't have love, you gain nothing. Well, Jesus did love, and he continues to love you. Romans 5.8 is going to be on the screen. It's to my right and my left. Let me prove that God loved you by giving his body. And Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us, and in doing so, he loved us perfectly. No one else has ever done that. Not the most faithful spouse, not the most faithful friend, not the most faithful parent. Have, no one has loved you perfectly, but Jesus does. If you're hurting because you don't feel loved by people, that makes a lot of sense to me. You were made by God for perfect love from God, perfect love from Jesus. Jesus is God. You were made for Jesus' love. And other people's pathetic efforts at love do not measure up. And neither do your own pathetic measures of love measure up. But that's why we observe communion, isn't it? Because when Jesus says, this is my body broken for you, do this in remembrance of me, what are we remembering? We remember Christ's love for us. 1 John 4, 8 says, it's going to be on the screens to my right and my left, God is love. I'm going to keep that verse on the screens for the rest of the sermon so you can just soak that in. God is love. Jesus is love. Maybe the reason you struggle to love others so much is because you've yet to encounter God's love for yourself. Maybe the reason you're so dissatisfied with your life is because you need to accept the loving embrace of love himself. 
Maybe you haven't yet experienced the love of God, which you were made for. Come run to Jesus, keeping in mind that Jesus himself is love. Come run to love himself. I'm going to reread verses 4 through 7, knowing that Jesus is love. I'm going to replace the word love with Jesus' name. Here we go. Follow along with me in verse 4. Jesus is patient. 2 Peter 3 says he'll wait 1,000 years for a sinner to repent. Jesus is kind. John 18 says even when he's slapped in the face, he doesn't retaliate with a mean remark. Jesus does not envy. The Father and the Holy Spirit didn't have to take on human flesh and die on a cross, but Jesus joyfully went. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not arrogant. Instead, he brings glory to the Father, not himself. Jesus is not rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Instead, he prays, not my will, Father, but your will be done. Jesus is not irritable, though he had every opportunity. Jesus is not resentful. In other words, Jesus does not record wrongs. Isaiah 43, 25, I will not remember your sin. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing. He's really grieved by sin. Jesus rejoices with the truth. He celebrates when believers come to believe in him. Verse 7, Jesus bears all things by taking your sin. Jesus believes all things, trusting the Father's promises, and Jesus hopes all things, looking to his return your resurrection, and Jesus endures all things to bring you there. Mercy House, this is your God. Jesus' love will motivate us to love better. It will. But we will still sin. We will still not love perfectly, even though he does work in us. We're still, we have sin clinging onto us. We're not going to love perfectly, even though we get transformed by him. And when that happens, we can fall at the feet of love himself and say, I am unworthy to be loved because I do not love. And I'm sad, Jesus, because I don't even feel loved myself. And he can respond, you're right, you do not love well. And you're right, you're not loved well. But I love you even though you don't love me, even though they don't love you, I love you. And apart from me, you are noisy nothingness deserving wrath. But I love you, and I make you more than nothing. I make you something. I make you something glorious and something eternal. And you're going to see me face to face, and you will know me fully. And I love you fully now, and I will love you endlessly. So come to me now and let me love you. That's what Jesus can say to us. We're going to take communion now. And the way that we do that at Mercy House is we get up from our seats, we form lines, people are going to give us the bread and the cup, and we rotate around and sit back in our seats. I should point out communion is only for Christians because it's only Christians who can remember Christ's love. But if you're not a Christian, there's nothing to remember because you don't believe it yet. But maybe you became a Christian today. Maybe during this sermon, you became a Christian or maybe during the worship songs, you became a Christian, and you believed in Jesus for the first time. Come, remember, and enjoy his love for you by taking communion. There'll be prayer in the back for anyone who wants prayer during this time. Let's take communion now.